if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've realized that we've entered into a series of commands that seem a little interesting, especially in our context. Uh, dealings of how this ancient culture functioned, but nonetheless, it's in our Bibles and it tells us something about who God is and his principles and his character and his nature. Now, if you notice, when we covered 22, we only covered half of it, right? So there's down from verse 13 of chapter 22, all the way down to verse 30. We're not going to touch on these because, not that it's not important, but we've already alluded to them and referenced them in previous studies. And so it's going to be a lot of familiar content. But just to summarize, from verse 13 down to verse 30 of chapter 22, what you and I are receiving from there is God's commands, standards, laws concerning anything in the realm of sexuality. And if you want to, just a Summary of what God's trying to say in those verses is simply this. Sex is very sacred to God. And it's something that is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. Anything that is violated outside of those parameters is a lesser enjoyment of that sacred gift from God. And that's a whole other study for another time. But this also deals with laws when somebody is violated sexually. This deals with if somebody is concerned that their spouse is committing adultery. And really the umbrella title over all of that is simply this. God values this thing called sex. And God wants his people to know two things. Maximum pleasure in it. That's a shocking thing. man. You talk to some people. And all they understand about Christianity and this concept of sex is that God doesn't want you to do it and just make babies when you get married. But that is not the language the Bible gives us. God gives us his commands to know a maximum pleasure in the realm of sexuality. But also he gives us commands to ensure a maximum protection. And we're not just speaking about unplanned pregnancies or unwanted diseases. We're talking about an emotional damage that can occur when we choose to do something outside of God's prescribed way. And so maximum pleasure, maximum protection is God's mind behind his commands, behind this thing called sexuality. And as we come to 23, we enter another series of commands. And they're quite interesting, just like the other chapters. But the first few verses deal with what we're about to read, something known as the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord. And we think to ourselves, what does the assembly of the Lord mean? Well, let's read first, and then we'll unpack that. You're, you're in for a shocker right from verse 1, by the way, just to give you a heads up. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Let's just stop there. When we hear assembly of the Lord, what we have to understand is, it is not speaking about the people as a whole, as a nation. It is not speaking about those who are not allowed to dwell in the land or to be a, a part of common society. When the Bible is saying assembly of the Lord in this context, it is speaking about the people who are gathered together to perform religious rites or sacrifices or feasts around the central component of the nation, that is the temple. What was once the tabernacle became the temple in Israel. So the assembly speaks of those who would gather and have the privilege 
to be nearer to the presence of God as it was hosted there in a manifested way. And what we get from these verses, as we're going to continue to read, is that there were exclusive rights to this place. If you were not a certain type of person, you could not just freely approach the assembly of the Lord. And that is not to say that God is biased or that God has favorites or that God is racist or any other negative understanding. There is a reason why God says there are certain types of people that cannot come to the assembly of the Lord. And it's important for us to understand because there is, again, wisdom behind God's commands in this. So look at verse 1. No one who, whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now what we understand from this is when we look at the larger context of the Bible, I believe this is speaking about self-mutilation. Self-mutilation. As somebody would undertake for some reason or another to damage their bodies, and I believe the main reason for such an act is because of pagan worship. So we're going to put up on the screen right now Leviticus 19.28, and we see a familiar command that we've already touched on before. And Leviticus 19.28 gives a command that gives us a little bit of an insight of what this might be. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Don't be scared if you have tattoos, by the way. Okay, don't be scared. That's another study for another time. But the understanding here is speaking in a culture that would both cut themselves and tattoo themselves as a way of expressing worship and devotion to a false god. To a false god. And it is quite possible that when we come back to Deuteronomy 23.1, that a person would even be so devoted to a god that he would castrate himself. He would actually undergo self-surgery and remove certain genitalia as an expression of devotion. And God says, if that has happened to you, if you've done that to yourself, you have no access to the assembly of the Lord. And I believe there's one main reason. There could be many. Obviously, the concept of God's value and procreation. But secondly, remember in the Old Testament with the Israelites, what was the sign for the men that they were in relationship with God? Circumcision. It, it was something that all men had to do as a unique way of demonstrating their devotion to God to say, I am, it would be a reminder to them, I am set apart unto the living God, the God of the Bible. And to, to take this upon yourself, what we see in verse 1, is almost to make a statement that I am permanently separating myself from any relationship with God in covenant. And so serious was this to God that if somebody were to do it and apparently later repent of it, we don't see any room for inclusion necessarily. This is very serious to God. And we're going to touch on this in a moment. Then you come to a second individual that was limited in their access to the assembly. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you hear forbidden union, what comes to mind? Biblically, adulterous relationship. Sure. Any other ideas of forbidden union? Divorce. Okay. Same sex. Okay. Well, we're talking about somebody who is born of a specific type of relationship. Incest is another one. Foreigners. Did you hear that? Foreigners. And I believe foreigners 
is the main idea behind this command. It is, it is not subtle to see how God makes a great stance against his people intermingling with those who are not in relationship with God. We've talked about that on so many studies. But just to get an idea of why. why God is not racist, nor is God wanting others to be included in his family or relationship with him. But God knows the human nature and how men can be blinded by beauty. Men can be blinded by any kind of persuasion from another individual that would lead them astray from relationship with God because of a forbidden relationship. You don't have to turn there, but here's an idea. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, look what it says here. This is way later on in Israel's history, but we get a glimpse of how serious this was to God. In Nehemiah 13, 23, Nehemiah is a book about when the Israelites have come back from exile in Babylon into the promised land. So right here in Deuteronomy, we're talking about before getting into the promised land. Nehemiah is when the people come back from exile because in the promised land, they have disobeyed over and over and over. And God says, enough is enough. I'm taking you out. But because of his mercy, he brings them back in. One of the reasons why they were taken out is because they've disobeyed this command of marrying other nations and marrying other peoples of different religions, bringing apostasy. Look at Nehemiah 13, 23. This is when they come back. Talk about the flesh. Talk about our stubborn nature. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. In verse 24, we're going to read a few verses. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. Listen, they had just come back from exile. God was merciful and gracious to restore them to their nation, and it just took a little bit of time before they started marrying other people groups, putting their race, more importantly, their faith at risk. And I, this is Nehemiah, he says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That's intense. You know what's amazing is Nehemiah and Ezra, you see a comparison, two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries that dealt with the same group of people. But you know what I love about Ezra? He pulled his own hair. <laughs> Nehemiah pulled other people's hair. And leaders, when you're tempted to pull other people's hair, Pull your own hair instead. Don't pull anybody else's hair. Ezra came before God and pulled his own hair out of a brokenness for the fact that his people were so inconsistent. And Nehemiah pulling their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. In the next verse. And this is the reason why. This is God's wisdom behind the command in Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Who's Solomon? The wisest man on planet earth after the person of Jesus Christ. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. Listen to this. And God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him. You see that word? Even him to sin. So we have to understand something, that if the wisest man in the world was taken down by wrong relationships, what about you and I? We better, be, we better be careful of the decisions that we make, not just in romantic relationships, but in all types of relationships. If Solomon, look what Nehemiah is saying, even Solomon, the man that was known for his wisdom and how to 
solve situations and, and give answers to complex riddles. Even such a man fell because of this failure to trust in God's wisdom about how we should relate to other people. And so when we come back to Deuteronomy 23, we see that both verse 2 and verse 1 says something about God's wisdom. Those who would castrate themselves and those who would marry foreign women. Now when you read that on the surface level, please do not get the impression that God, again, is trying to create this holy club and he doesn't want people that are disfigured or he doesn't want people of different nationalities or ethnicities to be a part of who he is or to come near to him. I believe the reason why God gave these two standards in verse 1 and 2 is for this main reason. I believe the main reason is that these commands, because of their severe consequences, would create a deterrent. It would, it would discourage the people of even entertaining the thought of doing that to themselves or trying to include themselves or give themselves into a foreign relationship. It's God's wisdom to say, I'm giving you these commands so that if you even think that you can go this route and come near to me in the assembly of the Lord, it will not happen. God's heart behind such commands is not that his heart is closed to such people. It's to create such a fear of God in their hearts that they would not even take a, a toe in the direction that their flesh might take them. We need proof of that, right? We need proof to see if, if God's heart is really saying that. And you'd be amazed. I hope that you will, you will see how beautiful it is to look at the entirety of the Bible and not just pick by books of the Bible. If you're going to put any reference, if you take notes, this is one thing to note. It's in Isaiah 56. Look at this. In Isaiah 56, verse 3. In a prophecy of, of Isaiah, we see that he is speaking about certain individuals that might feel, because they're not a part of the Jewish race, that they would be included in God's near manifest presence in a relational way. But not just if they were in a Jewish race, if their physical condition or their family ties might be a reason for them not to think God is going to accept me. And what's amazing is Isaiah 56, look at a prophecy. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch, you know what a eunuch is, is a person who castrates himself, is a person who has undergone such a procedure for different reasons. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, meaning what? Behold, I have nothing to give. I, I've, I'm not able to produce fruit in a physical sense, offspring. For thus says the Lord, the same God who gave the command in Deuteronomy 23 says this, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 23 talks about eunuchs. If you're a eunuch, you're not coming in. But Isaiah 56 says there's a day coming where all doors will be opened for even the eunuch to come in. Look at the next verse in verse 6. And the foreigners, weren't we just talking about forbidden marriages? And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Do you see this? So when I come to Deuteronomy 23 and read verse 1 and 2, I'm not reading about a God whose heart is against those who have a different physical condition, even if they made mistakes with a wrong motive, or a God that is shutting the doors on foreigners, even if you're the offspring of a forbidden marriage. Isaiah 56 says, no, specifically to those two people, where, where my law says no, there's a day coming where it's going to say yes. And the reason why he's giving it in Deuteronomy 23 is to create a strong warning for his people not to undergo such things. Do we see now? Is that clear? Is that understood? It's a beautiful thing of seeing God's heart behind it, but also God's wisdom to say, initially I gave these commands so that my people who are so driven by their sinful nature would be limited, would be held back because of the severe consequences mentioned. And yet Isaiah 56 says, you know, I, I, I love those people still. And I want them to come into my assembly. And I want them to come into my presence. This is God's heart. It's a heart of love, but also it's a heart of wisdom. And then we come to verse 3 of Deuteronomy 23. What do we see? No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation. And look here in verse, verse 5. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Verse 6, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. If you're an Ammonite or a Moabite, you're in trouble. Uh, does anybody know the origins of the Moabites or the Ammonites? What are the origins? This is just Bible history time. Moabites, Ammonites. Are they a random group of people or do we know their origins? If you go to Genesis 19, verse 37, we see the origins of both Moab and the Ammonites. It's not just they came from Lot's daughters. Listen, it was originated from a, a relationship of incest. You had Lot's daughters who slept with their father Lot. Now, we don't have time to cover why. But this is where the reference is concerning their origins. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son called Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So the Moabites and the Ammonites had a very strange origin. They came into existence through a very, again, uncomfortable I picture of a relationship between a father and their daughters and the reason why they even came to that place was because Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed Lot and the daughters escaped the daughters in their minds thought that they were the only people left on earth and so they intoxicate their father and in order to preserve the human race go to that extent but you know you know why they had that idea I believe this is the reason why they even went that far it's because they grew up in Sodom and Gomorrah in a city that was known for its perverse sexuality, surely growing up in such an environment, you would be inspired to, to take that as an answer to, to an apparent issue. But God is not condemning the Ammonites or the Moabites because of their origins. What do we see here in verse 4? Because they did not meet you with bread, in Deuteronomy 23, and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt... And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. That is the reason why. That when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and they were trying to come into the promised land, 
There was a portion of their journey where they had to pass by the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they said, you're not passing through. They offered to even buy their food and water, and they said, you're not passing through. And all the while, God is taking record. God is taking record. And they went beyond that to hire a warlock to try to curse the Israelites. Balaam, remember in Numbers. So Balaam now is trying to curse the people, and God took note of that. God took note of that. And this cost them generationally to be able to know something about the assembly of the Lord. But look at verse 5. There's an interesting insight. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord your God loved you. I love that. You know why? Because in Numbers, you have the people journeying. And the story goes that Balaam is on a mountain, not seen by the Israelites and not even known to Moses at the time. And you have a man who is cursing or attempting to curse the Israelites. And the people have no idea about it. And all the while that's happening, God is turning the curse and is actually blessing the people. And obviously at some point it was known to Moses. And Moses is making known to the people. He goes, hey, do you realize that there was a guy in that time of, of, of our journey that was cursing us? And God turned that curse into a blessing? And here's a principle for you and I. Do not limit your understanding of God's love to measuring the activities that are noticeable in your life. Realize that God's love is so much more intense than you and I can imagine. It goes beyond what you and I see or perceive. He's actually doing things in the background that you and I are not aware of. You realize that about your life. Your life. That oftentimes we praise God for what he's doing, what I see, what I feel, what I hear, what I'm surrounded by. And this insight tells me that there is testimonies that you and I are not fully aware of. And hopefully, one day will be known to us like it was known to Moses. Don't limit your thanksgiving to God for what you see. Believe that he is doing something for you in an unseen way. And understand that especially with a ferocious, soul-hungry devil that is roaming around this world, there are things that you and I are protected from that we are surely not aware of. And God's working on your behalf. God's working on my behalf day by day by day by day. This truth alone should provoke you and me to say, Lord, not only am I thankful for the things that I see, for the things I'm aware of, but God, I thank you in faith for the things that I don't understand and don't really know, but I trust that you're doing for me. God works in the background of your life and mine as he did for the Israelites. But there's a problem with this whole Moabite Ammonite thing. Can anybody think why? Why is this law a little bit of an issue when we understand a whole biblical narrative? Does anybody know why? Because we bump into somebody later on in the Bible. Who is a Moabite in the Bible? Ruth. There's a whole book called the book of Ruth. Four chapters, small little book. Beautiful book. And in Ruth chapter 4, we understand who comes from Ruth. Does anybody know who comes from Ruth? Jesus, and before Jesus, David. But it says no, no Ammonite or Moabite shall ever come into the assembly of the Lord forever. 
So let's go to Ruth, chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. And you're going to see it on the screen, especially in verse 21. We can pull up verse 21. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Ruth, according to Ruth 4, now we can go to verse 10, we know where she's from, and the Bible is not shy of telling us over and over again in that book that Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, and not only does her descendant, David, come into the assembly of the Lord, David becomes the king of Israel. This is a tough one. Because according to this scripture, no Moabite or their descendants should ever come near the temple. There's a lot of different answers for this. And disagree with me if you'd like, but I believe the reason why some would say, well, no, this is only pertaining to the men. Ruth was a woman. She married an Israelite man. It doesn't apply. There's different answers. And I believe the simple answer to this is found in Ruth 1, verse 16. That gives us perhaps an answer to why her descendants were allowed to come near the presence of God. But Ruth said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your what? Your God will be my God. Remember when we went back to Isaiah 56? Remember where it says about the eunuch and the foreigner? It wasn't just the eunuch or the foreigner generally. It was the eunuch and the foreigner who would do what? Who would come into covenant with God. Who would honor the Sabbath. Who would obey the commandments. See, God was open to anyone and everyone who was willing to say, I want to enter into relationship with his God. And what I see here, I see that there is a woman who was a Moabitess. But she was a woman that believed that Naomi, her mother-in-law's God, was the true God. And she wanted to come into relationship with that God. And because of such, such a devotion, God was willing to say, yes, not only you, not only you, Moabitess, but your son David, not only, I'm going to choose the Messiah to come through your lineage. And when people read about the genealogy of Jesus, they will, when you read Matthew chapter 1 and you see those things, you go, nah, let me just get to the birth of Jesus, don't. Read the genealogy and realize who God and his sovereignty chooses to associate himself with. And one of them is Ruth. What you can, you can say as almost a cursed, a cursed people. God says, I'm going to choose to come through her. So that as a statement, even through my genealogy, I want to say to the world that I'm reversing every curse. Every curse. Including this one. So this is where we can see some reconciliation between this command and how Ruth was a Moabitess. Now we come, in your Bibles, to verse 5, rather verse 7. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Bible lesson time, who are the Edomites? They are descendants of Esau. Who's Esau? Brother of Jacob. Because he is close to you, Israel, who was once known as Jacob, don't hate your brother. Don't eliminate your brother from being available to the presence of God. You shall not abhor an Egyptian. Why? Because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So why the Egyptians? 
Because all we understand of Egypt is that they put them to slavery and hard labor for so many years. But before that, that wasn't the case. Egypt served as a womb for the nation of Israel that came in with just a few numbers. And throughout the years, they were nurtured and cared for, yes, because of Joseph, but also because of the heart opened by the leaders. And Israel in Egypt grew to become a mighty nation. And because of that, God took note of it. And God said, because of that season, even though they were in slavery, they have access at a certain point. So all these things teach us something. If there's a general lesson, know this. God takes note. God takes very close notes and pays very close attention of what you do to others, what I do to others, what others do to me, and what others don't do to me. He takes note. Thank God for the blood of Jesus that wipes my record clean and doesn't hold anything against me. Look at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 23. Everything from verse 9 to verse 14 has to do with hygiene. Simple as that. How the people as a whole should prevent disease in their camp and to prevent anything that would be undignified. That's as simple as it is. We're not going to touch on these commands. It's very plain and simple. Know this about God. He cares about our cleanliness. One point to take out of the whole thing. But what's interesting is verse 15. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Question for all of us tonight. Has anybody ever brought up to you as a believer in Christ this issue of slavery in the Bible? Lift your hand, please. Nobody else. This is one of the most common objections to the Bible when it comes to this issue of how apparently the Bible condones slavery and, and how even some people in history have pointed to certain verses and said, because God approves of it, I'm going to buy some people and treat them in a certain way. And so oftentimes you get the objection, don't you believe in slavery? Doesn't your God promote slavery? And if you want one verse to clarify the issue of this, it's certainly this one. What do you see here? You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. So what's the understanding? I don't believe this is speaking about a slave within Israel. It's a slave from an, any neighboring nation. And what happens? He apparently escapes his master, comes into Israel, finds an Israelite, and here's the command. When you see a person who's escaped, their taskmaster, you have no right to send them back. In fact, when a slave comes up to you, what are the instructions? You shall let him dwell with you, and not just dwell with you, he gets to choose where he wants to go, and you have no right to ever do harm to him. Now, that verse alone should clarify to a great degree how the Bible's understanding of the word slavery or the commands around slavery is far from the picture that we've interpreted in our modern understanding. We can't ignore the fact that the Bible does speak about this thing called slavery. But what we can do is show throughout the scriptures how God has a completely different mindset behind this thing than how we have seen it or read it in our history books. So I, I want to I take this time to hopefully through the scriptures equip all of us so that if this question ever comes up, you would have language and even proof. See, if anybody's going to attack the Bible, they better use the Bible. 
and they better accept the Bible as a means of defense. Nobody can just attack the Bible without reference because they Googled something on the internet and heard something from some famous atheist. No, if you're gonna attack the Bible, show me the scriptures. You took one word, give me context. And when you do that, here's some verses to clarify your objection. And I'm not saying that because all people wanna attack the Bible. Sometimes people have genuine questions about this concept. So take note of this. I encourage you strongly if you wanted this for future reference. Look at Exodus 21, verse 16. Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, if he's caught with that person, you will be put to death. Wow. So what is this saying? Well, this speaks totally against this concept of slave trade. Buy somebody, kidnap them, and sell them for profit. That, that this speaks against it clearly right there. So there is no promotion for an individual to do such an atrocious thing. Nobody could ever undertake, nobody in their right mind can say, God approves of me stealing somebody and then selling them and then letting them be whatever they want to somebody else. It is completely contrary to God's character and nature. But not just Exodus 21, 16. In the next chapter, Exodus 22, verse 21. Look what it says about the Israelites concerning foreigners. You shall not wrong a sojourner somebody traveling by, or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see this? You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. When we understand slavery, don't we understand oppression? Right? We understand that, right? To take somebody and to put him as a slave is to oppress them. Their rights, their health, their strength, is all completely under my control and I can abuse it as much as I want. That's our understanding of slavery. Yet, God has given a standard to his people that anybody traveling by, anybody outside of your people group, you have no right to ever oppress them or wrong them. And here's the motivation, because you were once a slave in Egypt. So does it make sense? Please pay attention to this part. Is, does it make sense for God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt? only to give them the right to, to have slaves themselves? Is it consistent with the nature of God to say, I'm going to remove you from this oppression under Pharaoh, but now that you're in a place of dominance, have at it, you can have all the slaves you want. Make sense? I hope it makes sense. This is clear. God is not wanting his people to mimic the very thing that he delivered them from. God is very consistent with his convictions. And so when it comes to the people, they should never oppress or wrong anybody for their benefit. But that doesn't help us necessarily with understanding the fact that there are commands about slaves. And there are commands about slaves being acquired from foreign nations. But generally speaking, when you see slaves in the Bible, what you will often see is that it was a voluntary act from someone in order to repay a debt that they owed. This is especially true for the Israelites. When an Israelite was a slave, it was because they wanted to repay somebody that they borrowed from and could not repay by other means. So here I am as a servant in order to 
cut off this debt through my labor. That's what the common understanding of a slave was. And so you can safely use another word such as servant. Because now we're going to see in the same book of Deuteronomy how a slave was to be treated and you would be amazed to see the response of a slave if they so choose. So Deuteronomy chapter 15 and read this in verse 12 of chapter 15. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, if your brother, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, is sold to you. Now, time doesn't permit us to go to the verses where it says that a Hebrew person could sell themselves, but it's all over. If he is sold to you himself, we just covered how somebody can't be stolen and sold by somebody else. So it implies that if I sell myself to you, here are guidelines. He shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Now again, here's the motivation. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. You have no right to treat that person who has sold themselves as a slave the way you were treated as a slave in Egypt. In fact, do you remember in Exodus when they came out of Egypt, what did God give them? What did he do as a reward for them? He says you can ask for their silver, you can ask for their gold, you can ask for their clothing, and they will give it to you, and they did. The night that they were coming out, they acquired great, great, great wealth. And this is a reflection of that. The same way I did that to you. Now you do it to the person who sells himself as a slave. When they leave, when their term is up, you bless them like crazy. From your flock to your wine to all these things, you furnish them. You make sure that they don't leave the same way that they came in. You bless them. Now look at this. In verse 16. But if he says to you, I will no, not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. Now, when I understand slavery, the way we've interpreted it, I can't imagine somebody to say, after they've been released as a slave, to say, no, I want to stay with you. I love being whipped by you. I love being beat up by you. I love being punished. I love starving under your leadership. So can I stay with you because I love that so much? Can you imagine? Is that what the Bible's saying? It's saying, no, he has the choice because he's experienced the warmth of your love and your compassion and of your care. If he so chooses to say, I long to stay with you, give him that right and he'll remain with you forever. So do we see a tone of slavery here that's different to how we understand it? These verses declare to us that there is no way, whether it was an Israelite or a foreign person that became a slave, there was no right for anybody to misuse that power or to abuse such an individual the way they were abused in Egypt. That was out of the question completely. So a slave was mainly a servant that helped around with tasks that a person that could not pay off their debt wanted to pay off their debt. This is a way to do it. And this is how we understand the concept of biblical slavery according to the Old Testament. But what I love about this is that when a person escaped a master, 
Israel served as a sanctuary. Israel served as a safe place that they were never to be rejected, but to be embraced under God's loving care. I love that because it's a picture of the sinner. That when you are fed up with your sin, perhaps there are some here who have not come to that point yet. You kind of like the idea of Jesus, but you have not realized that you're a slave to your sin. Do you know the Bible gives us two descriptions of a person? Of every human in the world, there's two descriptions. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. That's Romans chapter 6. And if sin, if you're saying, I'm not a slave to sin, then stop it. Try. If sin is so little in your life, if you think you have so much control over it, just stop it. I challenge you, stop it for a month. Tell me how that goes. But when you realize that you are a slave to your sin, you're a slave to pornography, you're a slave to the bottle, you're a slave to the praise of man, you're a slave to drugs, you're a slave to sexual morality. You're a slave to violence. When you realize you're a slave, there is room for escape if you want it. And when you escape, you will be embraced by God. And you can dwell with him, and you will know a freedom and a joy and a peace beyond your understanding. In fact, before we go on, go back to verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. I, I want us to spiritualize that to a certain extent. No one who is born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. There is a certain concept of that that is true in the New Testament. That it is possible, God forbid tonight, that there are those who are illegitimate children concerning their faith and will not know the assembly of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? It's possible to think that you are the byproduct of something known as being born again. But you're not, you're illegitimate. And an illegitimate child will not know the assembly of the Lord. You must be born of a union that is genuine and sincere and supernatural. And if it's not, then it's illegitimate and you've closed yourself off. I wanna stay on this point for a little while because I wanna testify to you boldly and clearly that for the first 20 years of my life, I was an illegitimate child. I was an illegitimate Christian. Why? Because I was born into a Christian home. That doesn't mean lick. Because Jesus did not say in John chapter 3, if you're born in a Christian home, you can see the kingdom of God. He says, no matter how you are born, you must be born again. The only way for you to be a legitimate child of God is when you've undergone this experience known as being born from above. So to say that you're not a born-again Christian is to really indicate something of where you stand in terms of your relationship with God. I believe in the church. I'm not talking about the true church. I'm talking about the church as we express it. Buildings where people come. I believe there are vast numbers of illegitimate children that will not know the kingdom of God because they have not been truly born again. And they've undergone some different experiences here and there. They've done sacraments and they got sprinkled with some water. They got dunked at the age of who knows. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God.
What does that mean? It means you put your faith in Christ and realize that unless he supernaturally changes you, changes your heart, takes your faith, and as a result transforms your character and your nature, you're not saved. If that's you, cry out to God soon, quickly, and make sure that he changes you from the inside out. He takes your faith. You don't have to castrate yourself. You don't have to whip yourself. You put your faith in Christ, and he takes that faith, and he does something supernatural in your heart. Please do not be an illegitimate child. Be born again. Verse 21 of chapter 23. Verse 17 down to verse 18 deals with prostitution. And it deals with how if there's money that's gained by prostitution, that money is not coming to the house of God. God's business, God's kingdom, God's ministry should never be funded by illegitimate funds or sinful means to receive funds. God is not in need of money. When we give, it's because we do it from a joyful heart. 19 down to verse 20 deals with loans. We've talked about that in a whole Bible study. But look at verse 21. This is so interesting. This convicted me deeply. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you should not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. You know, it's a, it's a tendency of many to be able to just say things in conversations that are not really thought of beforehand. And the Bible is making it clear that that is certainly true when it comes to our relationship with God. That oftentimes when we engage with God or we make vows to God or we even make prayers to God, oftentimes our minds are not connected with our words. Sometimes we just, just go and say anything and we don't realize who we're speaking to and what we're really saying. And what God wants to say here in this passage is this. God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps his word. Every promise in this book is true and God is not a man that he should lie. He will keep his word. And what God is doing in this command is he's wanting his people to reflect who he is. If I'm a God who keeps his promises, you must be a people who keep your promises. Fair, simple, but not just on a human-to-human -human level, on a human-to-God level. Can you imagine what it would be like if God was a God that was inconsistent with his promises? I'll, I'll tell you this, I'll have trouble singing every time. I'll tell you this, I'll, not, not, never mind singing, I'll have trouble sleeping. Because if he promised me that I'm in his hand and nobody can pluck me out, but there's record of him breaking any promise, I'm in trouble. There's no peace. There's no, the fact that you and I can be at peace with not just things in life, but when you face death inches away from leaving this body and entering into another world, the fact that will keep you anchored in peace is because he's a promise-keeping God. But God so values promise that he requires it of us. When we say th something to God, he will keep note of it and he will expect it. I'm sure some of us in here have experienced the sting of another party giving us a, a promise and blatantly breaking it or even accidentally breaking it. It hurts. When you say, I'll do something or I'll, I'll finish this or whatever, and you, you fail to do it, 
something happens to our heart towards that person where the relationship cannot be as strong as it should be. And this is so important to God that I believe Solomon borrows from it when he wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 down to verse 5. You've probably read this. I remember as a new believer going through the Bible, just reading it from cover to cover, I remember bumping into this in Ecclesiastes 5, and it literally, in that moment of my life, changed the way I related to God forever. Because this is what it says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So why is he saying that? He wants us to realize who God is and who we are. He wants us to realize where God is and where we are. He wants us to comprehend that though as Christians we have a wonderful freedom to talk to God spontaneously, wherever we are. We don't have to come into a building. We don't have to sprinkle this or we don't have to throw that. All we have to do is just call upon his name and he has given us his full attention. As much as that is true, it is not to dismiss a reverence that he requires from us. Therefore, let your words be few. What does that mean? Does that mean that we pray short prayers and not long ones? No, no not at all. What it means is that we don't give up empty phrases or repetitions. You know many people just say the Lord's Prayer and they just say whatever. They just, and they have no connection with their heart or mind in doing so. None of us would want that on a human-to-human -human relationship. Can, can, we, can we try that? Every single day if I live with Tim to say, Tim, how are you? How art thou? Thou art great. Thou art wonderful. I'm doing great. Wonderful, great. And I just pass it on. And then the next day, Tim, how are you? Thou art great. Wonderful. I'm great as well. Nobody wants that. Neither does God. He doesn't want vain repetition. He doesn't want empty sayings. He wants our words to be weighty. And if they're few but sincere, they're greater than being many but insincere. But look what it says in verse 3. It says here, For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. That's, a, that's an interesting verse right there. Side note. You know a dream can come just because you're, you're busy? You have a lot to do. You've been doing a lot. Your, your life is busy. You've been thinking a lot. That's how dreams sometimes come. Not every dream seems to be something significant. Sometimes it can just be because you, you're thinking about a lot of things and you're planning a lot of things. And that's how a dream can come about. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. It is a foolish thing to promise God things and to never fulfill it. Because it will do something to that relationship like it would to another human relationship. If I kept promising things that I never fulfill, something happens there. And this is the part that shattered my heart. Verse 5. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Now look at this. This is the part. Why should God be angry at your voice? And destroy the work of your hands. Here's the understanding. That if I continually make vows to the Lord. And make promises to God. And break them and break them. And never keep them. And never realize what I'm actually doing. It can come to a place where when I, when I begin to speak to God that way. He's actually angry with my voice. Now I can show you scripture after scripture after scripture. That says that God loves to hear our voice. That like a father when he hears the cry of his son will run to us, to our aid. But this is a whole nother level. 
that I can, I can so give God these vows, these empty promises, these premeditated compromises, that when I continue to relate to God and I call upon him, my voice, my voice is actually something that is unattractive to him. May it never be, God. But may it be so that every time I am about to say something to you, especially when it comes in the form of a promise, that I realize what I'm saying. And you know what God says? You know, as much as it is a wonderful thing to say, God, I dedicate this, I'll give this, I'll do this. God says, listen, I won't be angry at your voice. It's better if you, if you don't say that, if you don't say that, because you're not going to do it, than if you do say it and you're not going to do it. Just don't say it. I value that more than you saying these spiritual things. You know, you know when the worst times those things can happen? In the heat of a meeting. In the heat of a meeting, when there's a convicting message or you're at a conference and the music is just right and the message was just for you and there's a, there's a call to dedication and people tend to just give these vows to God and they don't last a week. God's not interested. God, listen, God would rather be more pleased for a person to sit back and not make such a promise because they won't keep it than to make a promise and break it. This is how much it, it means to the Lord. And so whenever we make any type of vow, God is waiting for us to fulfill it on any level, on any level. And God is merciful and compassionate because he forgives all sin. And I can tell you this, that surely many can, if they're honest with themselves, say that there have been at least one vow they've made to the Lord that they have not kept. Maybe that's not your case. But even in that, God is willing to forgive and restore our relationship when we are realizing it and sincerely repent of it. But that, isn't that a powerful verse? Don't come to a place where God is angry with your voice and mine. Let him be pleased with the fragrance of my voice because he knows that when I say something, I mean it to him. Then we come to verse 24. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. God has two things in mind here. One, boundaries for the people of Israel, but also two, a compassionate care for the people of Israel. And this is his wisdom, is that if you have a, a field and somebody's traveling a long distance, they're an Israelite, and they see that you have grain or grapes, you can eat of that. Even if it's not your land, you have the right to pluck from it and eat and refresh yourself so that you can continue on in your journey. And this protects the person's land, and it also benefits the individual. What God is saying also is that you can't come through there, though you're traveling by, take a sickle and just take as much as you want and stuff your bag and walk out. No, no, no. Take as much as you need and walk. And we see this later on in the New Testament, don't we? We see Jesus and his disciples walking through, and with their hands, they, they're eating kernel, they're eating grain, and all of a sudden, these Pharisees pop out of the fields, they're like, hey, you, you shouldn't be doing that. You, you, you can't be eating with your hands all dirty and stuff. And, and they've completely misunderstood the fact that Deuteronomy actually gave them the right to do that. But what happened with the Pharisees is they got so caught up with their religious traditions that they have trumped over the word of God and they cared less about what the scripture said and more about what their traditions have built up over the years. Listen, if it's tradition that contradicts the scriptures, scrap the tradition, 
hold on to the Bible. That's a, that's a good principle, I think, right? Bible over tradition, I hope. But I'll tell you that there are millions in this world that are holding on to tradition more than the word of God. And Jesus rebuked the disciples, not the disciples, the Pharisees for that over and over again. You have placed tradition above the word of God and you're missing the whole point. But I see a, a, another principle here in verse 24 down to verse 25. I see that there is a wisdom that God gives, as I said before, concerning something called boundaries. Boundaries. How much I should give of myself to something or someone and how much I should take from something or someone. The Bible promotes practical wisdom. If you were there last Sunday, we talked about wisdom. How to live life in a way in which we glorify God in all our decisions, increase our joy, and deflect all unnecessary woes. And one of the things that the Bible promotes is this thing called boundaries, this thing called parameters, the thing called, listen, balance. Balance. And if there's any proverb to show that, and this is where we're closing, it's Proverbs 25, 16. Look what it says here. It's a beautiful principle. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you. Lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. If you find honey, is honey sinful? I, there's nothing in the Old Testament or the New that suggests that honey is sinful. In fact, honey is used as a symbol of, of, of a wonderful thing and is equated to the, the experience of knowing the word of God. Honey on my lips. If you have found honey, eat only enough. Do not abuse what something should be known as good and should be something of a blessing. Do not abuse it where it becomes repulsive and it actually damages you more than it does bless you. Honey, is not, he's not just talking about a substance that you can get at the grocery store. He's not talking about, he's talking about all things that are known in this world that are delightful and pleasurable not under the category of sin. Good things in life. And this is the wisdom. There are even good things in life that can actually make you sick if you don't have the appropriate parameters around it. So here's an example. There are many fathers who have found honey in their work. They're making a lot of money. But because they have found no balance in their lives, what's being damaged as a result of it? Their family. Their children. This is even for those in ministry. They're, they're not taking just enough. They're going above and beyond the need. And what ends up happening is that they hurt themselves and they vomit as a result of it. So there must be an understanding by the Spirit of God of how much I take from this world. And to walk in a lifestyle of balance in this world. Lest I abuse something even as sweet as honey and destroy myself or distort it as a result. Balance is wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to balance things in life. But then look, then you see another thing in verse 17 of the same chapter. Proverbs 25, 16. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house. Lest he have his fill of you and hate you. So now it's the opposite. The wisdom of knowing how much to take from a certain thing of life. And knowing how much of it I need and how much I don't need. And also now the opposite way of how much I give myself. 
And this is a simple way of healthy relationships. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and vomit you out, so to speak. What's the idea there? It's very simple. It's very practical wisdom. That in my desire to enjoy company, in my desire to be entertained by others, I also must keep in mind boundaries, their right to privacy, their right for their own plans to be fulfilled that are not including me. And in doing so, I will secure a wholesome relationship and not become a burden to somebody else and not become something that causes weariness to another individual. Now, this is one thing that's true about our relationships. When it comes to our relationship with God, you can never weary him out. You can come to him as much as you want. You can call him at three in the morning, go back to bed, wake up at four in the morning and call him, go back to bed and wake him him up at eight o'clock in the morning. He never sleeps anyway. God is never weary from our presence, but God in his wisdom deposits this little nugget of something known as boundaries to know how we ought to have fulfilling relationships in this life. And part of that is being able to analyze and being able to realize that people have their own thing. And it doesn't include me all the time. That doesn't mean you can't hang out with people or have close friends all the time. It means being able to discern when I am becoming a burden more than a blessing. You think that's what you got to do on my 23? I just saw the principle of boundaries there. And I think it's important to touch on because we are supposed to be a wise people. So God says in Deuteronomy 23, take enough for yourself. Don't put a sickle to it and abuse it. And that's true. That's a thread throughout the Bible. In human relationships, in good things in life, know what to take, know what to give, and may the Spirit of God give us wisdom to navigate through this life successfully. Deuteronomy 23. These are the lessons that we see from this Bible study. And we close on a certain note that I mentioned earlier. No offspring of a foreign union will have access to the assembly of God. Very simply put, tonight in this Bible study, as you stumbled upon this sanctuary and you've come into this random building in a random street corner, it got darker and darker as you came in. And as you came in, you realized there's light and there's, there's people. This is what this is about, more than anything. Are you born from above? Not asking what label you have, not asking, are you in your heart assured that there was a moment in your life where you have said that you needed Jesus and he's come in and saved you and changed you. And Romans 8 tells us that the spirit of God, listen to this, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. People say, how do I, how do I know if I'm saved? There's many answers to that question, but here's one that we cannot forget. The Spirit of God in you will say, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. That is more valuable than a little thing in your Bible where it says that this day I gave my life to Jesus and this preacher spoke and I responded with this. It's more valuable than that. That's cool. That's fine. That's that's, that's great. But more than anything is an inward assurance that the Spirit of the living God, a living Spirit, A powerful spirit whispers to my spirit, you're saved. Does Satan attack the assurance of our salvation? Sure. 
Does Satan make us doubt at times? Absolutely. But there is an inward knowing that you were not who you were before and you are becoming more like who you want to be in Jesus Christ. That had to have started somewhere. That had to have started somewhere. And you might be scared to think, well, I don't know if I'm a legitimate child because I don't know when I was born. Guess what? I don't know when I was born either physically. I just know I'm alive. Ask me my experience of how I came out of my mother's womb and I can't tell you a thing. All I can tell you is this. I'm living. I'm breathing. I'm talking right now. There's, there's life in me. I can feel my heart beat. And so it is in the spirit. I may not be able to point you in the day, the hour, the moment, the epiphany. I can't point. I can just tell you this, that my spiritual heart, it's beating. I'm growing. There's life in me. There's life in me. I know what it was like to be a fake Christian the first 20 years of my life, and I know what it's like to be born again. I can tell you that I have a life in me. And that's where you have to come. There's something in me that knows that I'm a child of God. There's something in me that knows that I'm not illegitimate anymore. And that's the opportunity that you can have tonight. Where you can realize in this place that you came in one way, but you're leaving a different way. And all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. If you believe in your heart, that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Believe in your heart and tonight we learn about how God values the mouth. Confess with your mouth before a holy God in this place that you need Jesus to be your savior. You need to be changed from illegitimate to illegitimate and God will save your soul. And you will know a relationship with him that you never thought was possible. It's beyond this once a week church thing that you come and hear something only to sin after. None of that stuff is true for the real Christian. You come into a living, vibrant relationship with God and you walk with a new joy and peace and a sense of purpose that you never knew could be possible. With all the amount of resources in this life, it can never be purchased. But in one simple confession, it can be accessed. It's yours. Just confess. Confess your need of him. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess that he's the savior. And watch what the spirit of God will do in your life and bear witness you're a child of God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray tonight. Lord, we sit back and we, we take in your wisdom. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. And that's why we can look at a book like Deuteronomy in a chapter like chapter 23 and see these things and think, how does this relate to me? Yet you give strong warning lest we entertain sin. But your heart behind it all is, I want, it, I want everybody and anybody that's willing to say, this God will be my God. God, we see your practical wisdom. We see how you value our voice and our promises to you. Not that you reject our voice, not that you're waiting for us to slip, not that we can say things and, and make mistakes, and, and not that you're not willing to forgive it. 
but you're not after somebody that takes this thing so flippantly. You're not after somebody that's willing to just say these things because they know they need to say it or, or they say these things because they got in trouble and they want a way out only to abandon on their commitments when they get out. Lord, we want to we be a people in which you love to hear our voice. And God, even tonight, if, if, if behind us is a trail of broken vows, broken promises that we've made to you, we said, I'm going to live for you wholeheartedly only to compromise only to live in sin, only to walk out on you, only to deny you. God, help us believe that that is not a sin that you're willing not to forgive. You, you want to forgive even that. But we ask that in forgiving us, you would also change the way we relate to you. That, Lord, we would realize that you're a person to be spoken to and related to. And not just some thing that we believe exists, but you're a person to know, Lord. You're a person that we can hear from and that we can give ourselves to. You're a person that we should not be afraid to speak to. And that's why we're praying to you tonight. That's why we're praying to you tonight. God, if there's anybody in here who's in doubt of your love for them, may they realize that you died for them. May they realize that tonight you've set them up to hear this voice, your voice through your word, to say, I want you in my family. I want you to be saved. I want you to know me. I want you to know my spirit in your life. Lord, if anybody is missing that tonight, let them receive it by faith. Speak to their hearts tonight, God. Speak to hearts tonight, God. Lord, if there's anybody in you who has a fear of you that's unhealthy, a terror of you, where they feel like you're just a policeman waiting to give them another ticket. God, may they see you as a loving father, that you're a God that wants to embrace them and lead them and teach them and strengthen them. Let your Holy Spirit do what only he can do in our hearts, God. That's what we pray. Before we sing, I want to make sure that if you're in this place and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as you bow your head and as you're, you're praying or thinking or wondering what's going on, ask yourself this question. Am I really a Christian? Ask yourself that question tonight. Am I really, 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 really a Christian? And if not, ask Jesus to make you a true follower of Christ. Because it's an invitation to forgiveness of sin. It's an invitation to a purpose in this life. It's an invitation to a relationship with the living God. Don't deny such an offer. But don't leave here questioning whether you're a child of God or not. Leave here with an assurance and a joy and a peace. Because you know. Because you know. If you've made a prior commitment to Christ, and you've backslidden. Recommit your life to Christ tonight in Jesus' name. Stop wallowing in the world and playing games with God. Give yourself to Him. Give yourself to Him. He's waiting for you. He's not looking to whip you or, or He's waiting for you to just say, God, I give myself again. And He will not deny you. He will not reject you. In fact, He, he will reprogram you and let you live with a purpose that is unimaginable. Just give yourself to him though. He can't work with half. He needs full. Give him full. Give him complete. 